Hey there, everybody. It's Michael. Welcome in to today's episode of the Michael Likes Stuff podcast. I'm really excited about this because I got to sit down and have a conversation with one of my old college professors who's also a local minister and is a new author of a book called Broken But Beautiful, Why the Church is Still Worth It. Uh, His name is J.P. Conway. We had an awesome conversation today about the church, about um, how it is uh, both broken and beautiful. Shocker, right? I know that's in the title, um, but we had a really uh, great conversation today, and I'm thankful that you are here, that you are tuning in uh, to hear me talk. That means the world, so thank you so much uh, for doing that. Um, I know it's been a minute since the last episode. I hope to have some more here soon. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just going to, I'll probably just hop on, talk about sports, talk about uh, TV. Oh my goodness, uh, Madeline and I watched The Social Dilemma uh, last night or two nights ago on Netflix. I highly recommend it. Um, the sad truth is you probably found this podcast through social media. Um, so it is useful, but beware. So yeah, you should check that out on Netflix. Um, and I've, I've, I'm thankful uh, I've actually been pretty busy lately, um, especially with my photography business has started to pick up a little bit. Uh, it's Michael Klinger Photography. I'm now doing sports photography. I did some maternity photos, senior pictures, family portraits, all sorts of stuff. Fall is a great season to get your family portraits done. Uh, you got Christmas cards are going to be here before you know it. So don't wait. Call today. Actually, you can just slide in my DMs. That would be less awkward for me, but I will answer your phone call. Anyways, that's enough for me. Thank you uh, for hopping on the podcast today. I hope that you enjoy this conversation with JP as much as I did. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I'm here with a friend of mine uh, who is also one of my college professors, and I'm just really honored to have him here today. We've got a uh, minister, local minister in Nashville, and new author, J.P. Conway. J.P., how are you doing? I'm doing good, doing good. Glad to be on with you. Yeah, um, so, you know, I just, I want everybody out there to get to know you. Um, I feel like... Um, you know, I spent a semester in your class, so I, I do think I've, I'm pretty well-versed. And I know we don't have to talk too much on here about how much you enjoyed having me in your class. Uh, but um, why don't you tell us uh, about yourself, where you're from, uh, about your family, what you do, and, and where you are now? Sure, thanks. Well, I grew up in Middle Tennessee. Uh, and then went to college out in Texas, lived in New England for a while, specifically Connecticut. Uh, so I've lived around a little bit, but mostly in the Nashville, Tennessee area. Of course, Nashville was a little different growing up in the 80s and, and early 90s than it is now. Um, married, wife, three children. Daughters are 6, 9, and 12. Actually, my 9-year-old, it's her birthday today. Wow. And uh, my wife is a biology professor and cancer researcher. And then I preach at a congregation in the 12th South, Edge Hill area of South Nashville. And then uh, I'm an affiliate faculty member uh, at Lipscomb University where, where we connected yeah. a few years back and I got to know you. Cool. Um, so it sounds like you have a pretty busy life between three kids and, uh, <laughs> you know, being a, a, a minister and, and all, all that goes along with that as long as teaching adjunct classes. So how did you end up writing a book, and why did you decide that you had time for that? That's a good question. Yeah, life is full. Life is fun, though. Life is fun, uh, but it's full. There's plenty going on. Um, Some of this, you know, as a minister, I've been a minister now for 20 years, and being a minister, you get involved in spiritual conversations with people on a somewhat frequent basis, because when you meet people, they say, Oh, what do you do? And when you say you're minister, preacher, youth minister, I've said various things over the years, you immediately get a reaction, sometimes good, sometimes poor, but you always get in some type of conversation. And Mm -hmm. so 
I just find myself listening to people talk about faith and spirituality in church on a regular basis. And most people's reaction, specifically to church, has just really interested me the last decade. Um, I feel like life is always caught up in a pendulum swing. Mm. And I think back to my grandparents' generation. They just didn't complain. They weren't complainers. Mm. And they definitely would not have said things bad about church. Like that would have been something that they definitely weren't going to do. I feel like we're kind of in the opposite of the pendulum swing now to where it sounds edgy. um, And it sounds like a a good Christian vulnerable, so to speak, to, to complain about church and to say negative things about church. And, and I definitely get it. I feel like, one of the main cultural events that put us into this swing was the revelations of the Catholic abuse scandals um, 15 years ago, and then all the revelations that the Protestants weren't doing much better, if at all, and then followed in recent years by the Me Too and the Church Too scandals. I, I get why we're in this pendulum swing, um, but I've just processing for several years now, how do we get here? What's the way out? How do we really, how do we listen? How do we, how do we bring healing to this cultural moment? Right. I think I, I really resonate with that. I think I'm very much of the generation where, uh, we want to be like, um, yeah, like church isn't perfect, but you know, like of of those of us who still go to church and are involved in church, you know, we, we obviously are part of it for a reason. Um, but we also, I don't know if we want to reform it or we at least want to acknowledge that it's not perfect and all that. And I do, th- I, I, I do hear what you're saying because, um, especially to someone who wasn't involved in, in your church, you wouldn't be like, yeah, I don't know, like our <laughs> church uh, did this or, uh, did you see what that church did? Like mm-hmm. that's so messed up or whatever. I think that, you know, my parents' generation, um, they're very much, you know, they, they might talk about those things, but they talk about them amongst themselves mm-hmm. where I think our generation is now, whatever we're saying, we're saying to the internet, we're saying yeah. that broadly, um, instead of just like keeping that amongst like our family or our, our close friends. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked about some of the things that, that, we do. And I, I, I watched some of your trailer videos. Um, and you know, you acknowledge that there are things in the church that are broken. Um, and so I guess my question next would be, what would you say is the biggest challenge for the local church right now? Obviously we'll, we'll just say coronavirus <laughs> it is excluded from this conversation because <laughs> obviously that's a, that's a big one. That's a really good question. I think what I try to trace out in the first third of the book is how we got here. Um, and, and obviously, any problem is going to start. Any, the root of any problem is going to be the fallenness of the world and human sin, but specifically in church life, how we're prone to hypocrisy because we know we shouldn't do bad stuff. Hmm. But we do bad stuff, so there's a tendency to hide it. I mean, it's just kind of a human instinct. It's one of the reasons why you tend to have hypocrisy in the church, because we have an atmosphere where confession is hard, accountability is hard, so you have a lot to lose with mm-hmm. exposure, and it causes it causes us sometimes to go underground with our behavior, but also... Uh, a refusal or a failure to confront people when bad things happen. So we have hypocrisy going on. The other big things we have going on um, that are challenges for the church, we're caught up in several decades of anti-institutional movements going back to at least the 60s where we're distrustful of large groups. We're distrustful of of big government, we're distrustful of big corporations, we're distrustful of big education, big pharma, all these things. 
and we're distrustful oftentimes of, of large churches and institutions as well. And then the other piece of that that's a big thing is at least since the 70s and magnified in the 80s and, and on into the 90s with kind of the tech boom, we live in a consumeristic mindset where it comes to church. There's a lot of good things about technology, uh, but one of the things that happens with technology is nothing is neutral. And so even what we're doing now, a podcast, it's, it's often, technology is often framed in an entertainment context. Mm. And so you have um, so much of churches become consumerist in nature and consumerism and consumption is based on dissatisfaction. Right. Because you, you have to maintain you have to maintain a level of dissatisfaction to keep people coming back. So I guess the three legs of that stool would be hypocrisy, kind of this uh burn it all down anti-institutional yeah. spirit. Uh and then the third leg being consumerism or consumption. Yeah. Um one thing I, I want to touch on is um that this anti-institutional mindset, I think what I've seen um, in the last, you know, four or five years is a lot of churches that are um, either startup churches or they're rebranding themselves. And there is this um, anti-institution thing that they're trying to promote, yet you are an institution. Your goal is to become a large institution, but you're trying to frame it in this uh, mm, like, yeah, just whatever. And I, I think like sometimes if I was at some, some churches and I was just like, okay, but like really though, like what do you guys think about, <laughs> about any sort of not hot button issue or just like general thought? I, I wonder if some churches have a, like, I just have a very cloudy view sure. of what it is that they actually think what it is that they believe and what sort of the foundational like skeleton of their church body is because it it's kind of it seems to me like come as you are i'm i love that like you know come as you are that's great um but then i don't know what keeps people around once they've come as they are and where to go from there because I think that that's the church model. It's just like, no, oh, whatever. We're just here being ambiguous, and I don't really know if there's anywhere to grow with that. Um, so I've definitely, I've definitely seen that. Like, how do you think we should go about like balancing this institution, anti-institutional thing? I mean, that yeah. seems really hard. There's a certain level of rebranding going on there when people come up with new names and various things. What they're trying to say is all the baggage you had in this previous experience, we're trying not to present that same level of baggage. But it's kind of funny. Like I was talking to a Methodist pastor and he was telling me the name of his church and it didn't have Methodist anywhere in the title. And I just asked him, I said, how many people at your church know that they're Methodist? <laughs> and he said... He said maybe half, <laughs> and I've been the bearer of bad news to people when they tell me what church they go to, and um, I say, uh, oh, you go to a Baptist church, and they're like, no, it's it's not Baptist, it's non-denominational, and I'm like, no, it's Baptist, or no, it's Church of Christ. Like, like right. behind it, I know what it is, right. because I know the people that are the ministers there, and I've read their website. Anyway, <laughs> and I don't mean to be cynical about that. I think, I understand what's going on there with the rebranding, but I think... So there's this anti-institutional spirit, um, this burn-it-all-down sense when it comes to churches. Um, and I think a healthier approach to that is to say, how can we be a healthy institution mm. rather than not be an institution at all? So we both grew up in, in what's known as the restoration movement, and it right. was this idea that we're going to try to restore something that is healthy. We're mm. going to bring it back. All Protestants, whether they think about it or not, go back to the Protestant Reformation where they're trying to reform something. And, and heck, even a lot of my Catholic friends will say, yeah, you should always be trying to 
reform and be the best version of the institution that you can be. So if someone is recent in their journey of deconstructing their faith, I want to be incredibly sensitive right? because there's an aspect to where that that's just a healthy part of becoming an adult in your faith, quote unquote, becoming your own. But when I see people that are in their seventh, eighth, ninth, 10th year of deconstruction, or I see a church that is basically a church that is doing corporate deconstruction. Yeah. I'm like, okay, at some point you gotta, you gotta reconstruct it. You know, it's just like you, if, if the house is too old to salvage, we're going to tear it down, but then we're going to, we're going to build a new one, you know? And so I guess what, what I'm trying to do in the book is to show this is how we got here. These are the things that, yes, need to be deconstructed. But let, let's not forget the good stuff, and then let's begin the work of what healthy reconstruction would be. Because if we look at church history 2,000 years, it has been the work of every generation to try to figure out, okay, this is what I've inherited from my spiritual forefathers, foremothers, and how can I continue a healthy spirit led Jesus movement in my time. Yeah. I think that that's uh, really well put uh, because I do think that um, I always wonder if churches should be the place to deconstruct. I think that our churches should be a place where if you're deconstructing while you're here, we love that. We see that we're with that. And I think we all need a place that's going to not be shunning of people who are going through that normal life experience. At the same time, I do think um, that sometimes we end up in a place where it is like we're so no baggage that we are leaving... um, we're leaving all of our bags, you know, it's like, you need, you need a a carry on with you at least, you know, like, um, you know, for instance, one thing I love about our church is, um, a lot, like our students are not growing up with the same baggage that I myself grew up with. They're not thinking if they're a boy that they're the only people that can preach or teach or lead in religious space, Um, they're not growing up if they're a girl thinking that they can't do certain things. Um, and that is really awesome. They're not growing up with the same shame structure that I think a lot of, uh, people that grow up in church grow up with. And at the same time, I wonder if we are also losing something like when it comes to like, like if you asked teenagers at our church, what, is like Philippians 4, 4 through 6 say, they might, they'll probably give you the blankest stare of all time. And, um, you know, I wonder in our openness and in our outwardness, if there's something important we're losing or if, because for me, the way I see it is like God sees us and knows us and I'm generally not worried about um, people knowing all the answers or being able to um, navigate questions from people. I'm just like, look, if you don't know the answer to what someone asks of you when they're talking, you're talking about your faith, just say, I don't know. Like, let's talk about it. Because I do think that that's something that I grew up thinking when I grow up, I've got to be able to know everything and if I'm talking to someone who's not a Christian I've got to have the right answers and I think that's baggage that they're not growing up with and at the same time I wonder if they're equipped as well as they could be for that journey that's a really interesting comment um I think every generation is gonna have a blind spot no matter what and every generation is probably going to recapture something that's really important to be recaptured so I think the obsession that some people have is I don't want to give I don't want to give the next generation any baggage because I had this baggage. Good luck. You are a (laughs) fallen, sinful person like we all are, and you're going to give them some type of baggage. I almost feel like it's, it's doing them a disservice 
and I want to be careful how I say this, but it's almost doing them disservice to not give them any baggage. Like, um, it's part of maturity mm. to work through something. Mm. And, um, and also it's saying just because I had this experience and someone else is going to have this experience. I'll tell you, on, on the way over here to the podcast, I, I passed the church where I grew up at. And, and one thing about, and some of this went in, into the book, as I've talked to friends that grew up there with me, we don't all have the same memories. Mm. So to use that word baggage, some of us have baggage, some of us don't. And then even if we say, well, what type of baggage do you have? Sometimes it's different type of baggage. And so I think some of this goes back to we're in an overly therapeutic culture. And disclaimer, I'm very positive about therapy. I've been many times myself. But we're in an overly therapeutic culture, and it's like people need to work things out. Like, right. And we need to let each generation do the heavy work of discipleship, reading the scriptures, putting the work in and then letting the Holy spirit lead them through a discernment process. Like this is what matures us as people. Yeah. And so what, what I'm hearing is that we have these two things that these two ends of a spectrum. One is saying, know the answers, have no doubt, suck it up. If you start doubting (laughs) and stick with it and keep going to church and don't let anybody know that you're having these doubts. And the other side is saying, doubts welcome. We love your doubts. Like you don't ever have to grow through this. Just keep throwing stones at this thing and see if it's still standing. And I think, you know, what I'm hearing through this is that there is some sort of of healthy middle ground mm-hmm. um, that we can uh, kind of find where, yes, it's good to doubt. You're maturing, you're growing. Also, at the same time, what are you doing to sort of rebuild things as things are falling apart in your faith? And I think that that is a reason that a lot of people my age aren't in church because they either feel like they're being forced to accept one or the other. Either this doubtless, strong faith of whenever I have anxiety, I'm just going to quote Philippians 4 to myself (laughs) and fix it, versus they, or the other side of they feel like, I don't even know what this group is. This church just feels to me like an ambiguous blob of whatever and i don't know what i'm dealing with here and so i do think that that is something that i think we are able to push through um so i'll just change the topic a little bit so i I read uh your blog post on consumerism celebrity pastors and how those things are um kind of reasons for the state the church is in this this brokenness Mm -hmm. This, the way that people are so easily able to say, I don't like this about church. Um, what is your blog's website, by the way? Is it jpconway.org? jpconway.org. And so I thought it was just really insightful. And here you are, a minister, a local minister. You're writing a book. So how are you able to like combat that as a minister yourself able to not want to assume this um celebrity role where you're sort of trying to be this spiritual meter of needs for everyone in your church well i think confession is a big aspect of that and i'm thankful that i had parents that modeled confession and mentors in my life that modeled that I remember my father as a child would confess sin to me. If he um, scolded us harshly, he would come back and say, I'm really sorry that I did that. So I grew up with, I grew up with knowing the leaders in my life were flawed and that they were pointing towards someone else. And then my first ministry assignment out of college the previous youth minister had um, had 
had left his wife and and run off with an 18-year-old in the youth group. Mm. And so I showed up at that church four, five, six months after that event had happened, kind of cleaned out his office and, and, and took took the reins there of, of that youth ministry at that church. And people... <laughs> People watched me like a hawk, you know, and there was yeah. a lot of suspicion just because. How old were you? I was 22. Yeah, I mean, the last guy ran off with an 18-year-old, and here they bring in a 22-year-old guy. Yeah, yeah, which there's there's a lot of things there. <laughs> but one of the things I learned from that is just, you know, Jesus, everybody talks about how Jesus is always just nice and everything, and to follow Jesus, to be nice. Jesus says some harsh things in the Gospels. And he says this thing that if, if you lead a child astray, it'd be worse uh, than if you have a millstone tied around your neck. Mm-hmm. You remember that part of the, of the Gospels. And what I saw firsthand is when you are a Christian leader and you publicly fall, you hurt a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you can't clean it up quickly. Like, you hurt a lot of people. And so when I was 22, I firsthand saw, this is how many people get hurt when it messes up. And so it's kind of what people that go to med school are trained with this first do no harm. I was like, the number one thing I want to do is I want to not do that. Right. I don't want to harm them. And so... Humility and confession were just practices that I embraced. And I said, hey, don't look to me to be perfect. And I'm sure, I mean, if you get into ministry, you probably have some level of Messiah complex, but um, which is not good, but it's probably real. And one of the things I've continued to try to do, and people have held me accountable to this, is I want to frequently confess sin to my church. Hmm. Um I want to have the reputation that when I do something wrong, I apologize and I say, I'm sorry. And I want a culture where people are accustomed to hearing me say, I'm sorry. And I think a lot of, a lot of cultures I've seen just, just don't do that. Um, and, and I think it's really important to do that. Part of this idea of, of consumption and the, celebrity pastor thing is we have to think deeply about what is the goal of what we're doing? Like what is the purpose of the church? And I think this, this could be one of the blessings in disguise of, of COVID and the COVID experience. Um, and I say that lightly because there's an enormous tragedy in the loss of life that we've experienced. But I'm hoping that coming out of this, we'll get a much healthier understanding of what it means to be church because going to church has been taken away from us. And so we really have to say, well, if it's not that. And so on one hand, you have consumerism going to an extreme level because now people are downloading worship. They're taking communion at home (laughs) as they're watching their computer screen or listening to the podcast. And you're like, oh, my goodness, like this is this is bizarro world. But in the other sense, people are saying, okay, like if it's not going to a building, what is it? And what I believe it is, is it's a group of people trying to do life together in the name of Jesus for the sake of the world. It's not, I'm going to go get my spiritual fix. Like before I came here, I was like, I started feeling a little sleepy middle middle of the day, and I was like, I'm going to get me a cup of coffee. And I, I think a lot of people see have seen historically churches that, I'm going to go get me a little spiritual hit. I'm going to get me a little spiritual fix. I'll feel better the rest of the week. And the celebrity pastor falls into that because it becomes your own personal Jesus. I'm going to go to this space. I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to have my little personal Jesus, somebody that really understands me and tells me things aren't really my fault. Mm. And then I go off and have a good life. And that's just, that's not what we do. It's not what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I think um, one of the ways that I've seen that the most is 
in the political climate that we're in because people really, really, really want to be told that they are correct, that the way that they think or the way that they feel is affirmed and Jesus would do the same thing and that's good. And I think when you people, I feel like there's this major push among church people of this is not about politics. This is not a place for you to espouse that as a church leader. And at the same time, I think church leaders that do mention things that are happening in our world, in our society, um, whether it be um, racial injustice um, or things like that, they're saying this goes beyond politics. They're saying that this is something that is a gospel matter. And that's why I'm bringing it up. And I think the truth is that most people, when they hire someone to lead their church um, as a pastor, as a minister, they are not wanting a prophet. <laughs> like, I, I think that this is uh, something I had to tell a friend recently, and I was just like, this, the sad truth is that you, you, in my mind, ideally, you are being sponsored by this group of people to tell them hard truths mm -hmm. that they do not want to hear. <laughs> and we live in this, I feel like as ministers, ministers live in this really weird thing. It's kind of like measuring like how much is this worth? Mm -hmm. How much, how much capital do I have saved up for this moment? And I think that that's something that is really, I think stressing a lot of people out. I think it's the reason that a lot of uh, ministers are right now like considering like maybe I don't want to do this anymore yeah. because they're they're living in this polarized society trying to guide these people towards Jesus and you cannot do that without addressing the culture we live in. Sure. As you said that I'm reminded of a story I'm trying to remember who told me this. It might have been a student was talking to their father who was was not a believer. The, the child was a believer. The son was a believer. And they were talking about church. And the father said, the system's fundamentally flawed because the person up there speaking is getting paid by the people that are sitting out there. He's going to say things they agree with. Like the system's set up. He can't push them too hard or they won't let him to continue to speak. And I think churches have to really wrestle with that. I mean, I even said to our church this past week was reading a hard scripture and said, listen, this scripture may be chafing. There may be aspects of this that we don't like. But Jesus never talks about whether we like it. Mm. He asks whether we'll submit to it. And I remember a couple of years ago, someone was telling me they just did not like one of my messages. And I remember telling them, and I wasn't trying to be coy. Like I wasn't trying to be flippant, but I said, Hey, I just need you to understand this. I didn't like it either. Mm. Like I preach sermons. I don't like because when I'm working with the text and trying to listen to the Holy spirit and I'm trying to do that in community with other people, I feel like this is what the scripture is saying. And this is what the Holy spirit is is saying and in line with the Christian tradition, but that doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> right. I frequently find it very hard. Um, and you mentioned politics. I mean, the challenge is that in our world, church has become therapy and politics has become religion for people. Mm. And we always hear, oh, that so-and-so, that, that person got political. Um, but I think if we go back and read Jesus in his time, 
we see people saying the same things about him. He got political. And and I think we want to be careful with that. I, I don't think that means we get up as we lead our churches and, and talk about the upper end tax bracket should be 42% and not 37% <laughs> or whatever. But yeah, there are non-negotiable things. And what we've tried to say just at our church is a lot of these things we've been wrestling with this year is this is a sanctity of life issue. Mm. And that human life has intrinsic value because God created it. And all human life um, should be valued and receive dignity. And as we look at our world, we should ask ourselves, what human lives are not getting their due? Mm. And we should stand up and say, hey, you may not think those lives matter, but those lives really do matter. And and we're going to be on that side of right. it. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm still wrestling with this like a lot of people. I, but I feel like if I get accused of being political, okay, I, I can handle that. But I want to make sure that my politics are downstream of my faith hmm. and not my faith downstream from my politics. Because right now, and it's so blurry as close as we are to an election, but so many different types of things are going on. I, mean, I was talking to somebody recently and they're like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't do church much anymore because I just didn't think I was making a difference. And I was like, okay. And I was just listening to him and I go, well, what, what do you do? And uh, they said, well, you know, I've, I've joined this group and we're trying to change the world in in this way. And we meet together and we canvas neighborhoods working for this change. And uh, I said, well, how you conceptualize that is it is similar different but similar to how i conceptualize church i mean we're a group of people that get together and we're trying to make things better not just for ourselves but for Mm. our neighbors now there's obviously some added elements of how we interpret god being among us as we do that in, in christian practices but we're a group too that gets right. together and tries right. to make things better for our neighbors. Um, but yeah, the politics thing is it's the cloud over everything. And it used to just be in an election season. And now I feel like we're, I can't remember what politician coined this phrase, the perpetual campaign, but I feel like it's, it's a perpetual cloud on us now. Mm. It's not just election seasons. Yeah. Yeah. I think you hit the nail Right, on the head. Um, One thing I want to get to is, of course, the title of your book is Broken But Beautiful, Why Church Still Matters, or Still Worth It, Why Church Still Worth It. Yeah, Why Church Is Still Worth It. Sorry about that. Uh, We're starting a new series in our youth group tonight, or tomorrow, (laughs) called Family Matters. Oh, nice. Which, I don't know if the curriculum writers understood that that's a TV show. That's a TV show. (laughs) Like, actually, in my generation, I remember that TV show. (laughs) Um, But... uh, yeah, uh, broken but beautiful. Why church is still worth it, and so you know we talked about a lot of brokenness so far. Yeah. I want to talk about uh, the beautiful side, sure, because I do think um, you know one thing we say at our church is we want to know be known by what we're for, not by what we're against. Mm-hmm. Which I know is not unique to our church. That's not like a thing we invented. Um, but, but it's rare to actually see, yeah. so it's a worthy goal. Yeah, um, and so what sort of things um, in your experience bring out that that beautifulness that, that we yeah. get to see? So I specifically started writing this book and working on this reflection about two years ago when I was asked to speak at a retreat of people that were studying to be ministers. This was associated with Lipscomb University and uh, a mutual friend of ours, Evan had asked me to come speak. And he said, there's an issue where we're having, where people graduate in this program, you're starting to be a minister. They serve for a couple years with the church and they get delusion and they don't, they don't continue on. And so we wanted you to come speak on this. What is, what has sustained you for 20 years working with churches? And obviously plenty of people out there have worked 20 years with churches, but I really wrestled because I, I can picture my friends 
not just who have left ministry, but have left church. And I spent a lot of time wondering why has my life gone different? Why am I so loyal to this group of people that is hopelessly flawed? And a lot of it went to family of origin stuff. And I talk about this a lot in the book. Um, I experienced some trauma in my childhood when my mother died in a car accident when I was eight years old Mm. and processing how in the midst, my dad is a hero. My older brother's a hero, how they helped take care of me in that time. Wonderful grandparents, ultimately a wonderful stepmother who I call mom now a huge part of my life. But in the midst of all that, looking back, how much, the church helped raise me Mm. and how the church provided honorary aunts and uncles and siblings and honorary moms and dads. And it was always a group of people because when I'd be at home with my dad and my brother in those years after my mom died and there was a lot of sadness and there was a lot of trying to pick up the pieces. But when I was with the church there was a sense of joy and there was a sense of this group of people value me. And there was a sense of hope Mm. when I was with them. And so all of that, I started noticing who are the people that really gravitate to church. And a lot of times it's people who have had some type of trauma in their life and they need that community, whether it's, their family system broke down um, or an addiction or death or something, but they really needed a family because something happened with their family. I mean, all of our families are a little crazy, right? So we all need people beyond our family, but they really needed a family. And from there, as I started talking to people and interviewing people and just spending more time listening I begin to see that there are four main things you get from participation in a church that you don't get anywhere else. Mm. Um, And those, those four things would be churches provide open weekly gatherings. Um, As I've taught to my friends that have left church and I ask them what they do to fill that space. And some of them play, Frisbee golf, some of them join bike clubs. Some of them have gotten very involved in politics and they meet and they do protests and canvassing and various things. And, and those are very good things. But I don't know anybody that meets at the at the frequency that churches do. Right. <laughs> Once, a, I mean, the only thing that comes close is, in my mind, is, is AA. And, and there's a lot to see in what they do. But churches meet weekly. And there's a power in that frequency. The second thing would be churches provide an intergenerational space. And I know this is something we've talked mm. to before because both of us have a background in working with teenagers. But most every other aspect of American culture is segregated by age. Even if we think of the school system, it's you're sorted by your age with a couple of token adults around you. And we have so much generational differences now where most people hang out with people in their same generation. Church is the space that mixes the generations the best. And and there's a lot to be gained from that. Like, mm. <laughs> I don't know. I tell you, during COVID, I've spent a lot of time talking to people in their 80s and 90s. How did you survive World War II <laughs> and that? How did you survive the 60s? Like, what advice do you have for me? But then I've also, I mean, people ask me why I, I keep... Uh, teaching college courses and doing stuff and hanging out. It's because I get an energy from college students that cannot be produced in the same way elsewhere. So we get a lot of energy from hanging out with different generations and even raising children. Every now and then the Holy Spirit will speak to one of my kids Mm. and say something that I needed to hear. Like it was so wise what they said. And so Church is probably that that open, weekly, consistent gathering, this intergenerational space. The third thing being churches give us a transnational identity. 
and this goes back to the political conversation we have, is churches remind us that we have an identity bigger than the nation state. And I think this is the most important thing for Christians to embrace, specifically in an election year, and specifically with uh, increased conversations on nationalism and what nationalism means and what does it mean to, uh, to be a part of the global community or retreat from the global community. Church reminds us that we're part of something really big that goes beyond this one country mm. that won't last forever. Um, no nation state has ever lasted right. forever. And so I would like to see Christians in America love the country a little less and love the church a little more. Um, and then fourth, church provides ethical accountability um, and this is the biggest thing I see with my friends I hang out with and people I talk to is there is a ethical accountability that you, when church functions well, we started this conversation talking about hypocrisy and, and Christians letting each other off the hook when it came to moral failure. But when church is functioning at its best, it's a place where we hold each other accountable. And there are things in my life I don't do Because I know the people at my church would confront me about it. Mm. And, and there are things I have done <laughs> that friends at church have said, you think that's a real, you think that's a good idea? Uh, I don't know about that one. And I, I could tell more stories than we have time for, but that accountability is a big deal. And when I look, specifically when I look at social media now, I'm, I constantly ask myself, where's the accountability? Mm. And, um, you mentioned shame culture. I think it's, I think it's great that we seem to have less shame culture than we did when I was growing up. But sometimes I wonder if we have less accountability. Mm. Um, and I wish we had more accountability. So that begins to, to offer the framework of these are some unique things that churches give us that no other social group does the same way. Um, and I'm, I believe the church is the greatest social movement that's ever existed on the planet. I think it's incredibly imperfect, but I am as optimistic about church as I've ever been. Yeah. Because I think Jesus was pretty optimistic about it. Definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have really anything to add. I think that that you've kind of hit it on the head. I, I will say that, um, you know, I think in my adult life, I have come to appreciate church so much more. Um, I think I didn't have the uh, when I was growing up, like I didn't have the. I guess I didn't have the hindsight to be able to know how blessed I was yeah. to have been um, raised in that scenario. Um, even though I knew like my best friends in the world were the people that I went to church with and um, you know, I got to see them multiple times a week, <laughs> yeah. just like what you're saying. And um, I think that was kind of my, my framework for why church was good. And you know, in college, like I didn't, I don't know that I had that the appreciation I have for church now because I was surrounded by like-minded mm-hmm. people already. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, you know, we live in such a lonely society, um, where people are dealing with all sorts of um, anxiety and depression and, uh just so many different things that cause us to feel isolated yeah. from one another. And for me, having a group of people that has to, like what you're saying, open to everybody that has to welcome me and accept me and love mm-hmm. me. And that I have a responsibility to do the same for them. It brings me around a table with people that I would not choose. Yeah to be around. Um, it, and it, it's good for us to be around people that we want to choose. Right. <laughs> that's where growth right. comes from. And that's another issue with social media mm-hmm. is that we 
a lot of times without even knowing it have been segregated into our little <laughs> circles, man. Um, I watched, uh, um, there's a new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. I've heard it. I haven't seen it yet. Everyone keeps telling me about and it. And it is, I mean, I kind of knew that, you know, basically we are being, that, that social media is not good for like societal understanding and unity but at the same time i had no idea to like the level that it is creating because for me like 2016 was like the first election year where i was really socially conscious so i think i just like accepted like this is how election years are (laughs) um like that was you know the first election i was like you know, around and thinking about all of that different stuff. And, um, you know, it's in a way nice to know that it's not, it doesn't have to be like this, but it's also crazy to me of where we are. Yeah. And I think, you know, as a society, we're a group that really needs to heal and come together. And I, what I do appreciate is church is a place that does not, draw lines based on things we generally draw lines on um you know like what you you touched on with the intergenerational piece like like there are i don't want to say they might be listening to this i don't want to say they're old that they are older than than me older than you people (laughs) um who love me and they affirm me and they take care of me they're like they're like my grandmothers, mm-hmm. my aunts, my my uncles, and it's just for someone like me who, you know, I'm I'm single, um, like have a girlfriend, but you know, like we don't live together or anything. Like it's just nice to have a group of people that, yeah, um, cares for me in that way. And I think church is literally the only place I can think of that that provides that. At least in that way. I mean, loneliness is such a huge deal. There's a chapter in the book about the loneliness epidemic, and it really is an epidemic and was declared that by Surgeon General under under President Obama. Um, and there, I've looked into this, like people who are trying to make connections that are lonely, there are friendship apps, there are clubs you can join, but there's something different about the church space. And we have lonely people at our church, and guess what? Sometimes sometimes that lonely person is me. Like Mm. even you can be lonely from time to time, even in a family. Um, Loneliness does not just come from solitude, but church becomes such a important space to embrace people that are experiencing either an episode of loneliness or, or chronic loneliness. But when I talk to my friends that say church just got really complicated, there was a lot of baggage we read the Bible at home as a family, and we have some Christian friends that we hang out with socially, and so we're just going to kind of do that and give our money to nonprofits. There are some admirable things about that, and I understand how they got there. But the thing that I want to come back with is, but where do you have a space in your life for lonely people? Where do you have a space in your life right. for people to enter in? Right. And where do you have a space in your life to hang out with people that aren't like you? Yeah. And... That's such an important thing. I was talking to a friend, this is a year and a half ago, and this is a friend, she and her husband, they have two children, and they had been wounded by the church, which as I said, is incredibly common, and we need to be patient and love people and find healing when that happens, but they were going through a time period where they didn't have a church, because they were taking a break from church and trying to process, and they went to her husband's, uh, they went to visit her husband's parents, her in-laws one weekend, and they went to church with them. And in the closing announcements of the service, the person giving the announcement said, hey, hey, one thing we wanted to mention, church, is this past weekend, Johnny broke his arm riding his bike. And she said that there was this roar in the church where everybody went, (gasps) and everyone was just devastated that little Johnny broke his arm. And she kind of teared up telling me this story, and she said... I want people to care about me the way they cared about that boy. And she said, 
she said, I'm still trying to figure out church and I'm still really hurt and I'm still trying to figure out some stuff of what I believe and what type of church we want to go to. But she said, I want to give my children a community so that when they break their arm, there's a group of people that go, (gasps) and I thought that was, I thought that was so, so powerful. Yes. 100%. And I think that's been like, you know, especially for people like me, um, who find themselves in a really small church context, just the immense value, <laughs> like, you know, everyone, Yeah. if I get the flu, it goes in the newsletter, you know, like, I mean, I send the newsletter, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but you know, like people are looking out for each other. Um, Speaking of looking out for people, um, you know, so all the proceeds from this book uh, that you've written are going to local ministry, Room in the Inn. Um, Will you just tell us a little bit about that ministry and how you landed on that decision? So Room in the Inn is a a hospitality ministry uh, for people living on the streets of Nashville, and this goes back to the mid-80s. I remember hearing about this ministry as as a teenager, the church I was at, participated in it. And then I've been at my current church for about nine years, and they had started participating in Room in the Inn two or three years before I got there. So the main ministry of Room in the Inn is November 1st through March 31st, those five months. Um, churches go by every single evening, and they pick up unhoused individuals, and they take them, take them back to their space. They feed them dinner, give them a place to stay for the night, feed them breakfast, and bring them back the next day. So it's basically... An, an overnight shelter where you're picking them up, your church van, your church bus, my Civic, you know, whatever, <laughs> taking them back to your space. They have about 300 churches and synagogues that participate in this, and they give housing to about 160, 180 people every night in those five months. And during the really cold weeks, it'll be up to three, even 400 people. Mm. The other seven months of the year, they continue to offer a day center. They have laundry facilities. Um, people can get their mail delivered there. All kinds of tools for people to get um, out of homelessness and get into the the things that they need to do to to make their lives better. And to me, it's been one of the great joys of my life the past nine years of being involved with that as, as an overnight volunteer. But also, to me, it was a perfect example of why the church is still worth it. Because <laughs> talking to my friends who, who work at Room in the Inn, they could not do that ministry without churches mm. and churches come to, and it's, it's churches of all denominations, all stripes come together and is these vans and buses are in a line. My church does it every Sunday night. So 22 Sunday nights a year. And as we're lining up to do pickup, I see the church names on the side of their vehicles and I know we don't agree on everything. But we believe Jesus is Lord, and we believe that we are called to love our neighbor, and those are pretty big things. Those are pretty big influential things. And I think church, if every church in our city ceased to exist tomorrow, we'd be hurting. We would be hurting. And things like Room and Then prove that. Because churches do so much good for all, whether you go to a church or not, your life has been blessed by a local church. And so do we need to reform all the bad stuff? Absolutely. Mm. (laughs) But as we're going through times of deconstruction and reconstruction, we can't forget the good that churches do. And to me, Room in the End was just a prime example of why church is still worth it. Excellent. Yeah, I've... um I've actually been fortunate enough to volunteer um, with a church in Nashville as like one of the innkeepers before and Mm -hmm. um, just getting that experience was, it was just neat. I mean, and and that's living in Nashville is unlike pretty much any other city in the world when it comes to just the amount of um, Christian like nonprofits Mm -hmm. that are out there doing work that you can partner up with. Um, and so, um, I'm really 
just there. Uh, I could name some, but I would miss all the other ones. So, <laughs> um, but there's so many that are that are great to work with. So, um, if you buy the book, that would be going to Room in the Inn. So, if you're worried about fattening JP's pockets, <laughs> I mean, I know he's he's an adjunct professor, so I know he's already raking in. Um, but uh, if you uh, if, if you're worried about that, all the proceeds are going to room in the end. Uh, so if you want to purchase the book, how do you go about that? So the book comes out November 15th, and you can pre-order it now uh, from Wiffenstock Publishers. Wiffenstock is spelled W-I-P-F and stock, Wiffenstock Publishers. And then uh, soon there will be an Amazon link as well. So you can pre-order it. It'll be coming out November 15th. And uh Probably sometime in December, there will be a Kindle download version as well. So yeah, we're excited about the project and appreciate everybody's support. I'm I'm hoping that this can be a resource that people who, I think there's two main audiences. I think there's people that are, are in church, but they're kind of hanging by a thread. They, li- they like Jesus, but they're not certain about his followers. Um, I think that book is for them. And it's also for those that have walked away from church and maybe haven't participated in a few years, but once again, still like Jesus and are maybe realizing they need some community as they seek to follow Jesus. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you have time for a short lightning round? Oh, please some, bring it. Some fun questions. Bring it. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll be done after that. Thank you for coming on today, man. It's been It's been a treat. It's, it honestly has. I've, I've been honored. Um, so, lightning round, question number one. What is your favorite Nashville eatery? Favorite Nashville eatery? Um, Hattie B's. Mm, dude, good choice. The one on um, 8th Avenue, is that the one you go to? That's closest to my house and church yeah. and kind of where I hang out. Um, I didn't know they had, like, the patio that they have. Like, <laughs> Yeah. I, so, like, I went over there and I was like, man, like... It's a ton of people here. They have a ton of outdoor seating. If you're, if you want to eat someplace outdoors, Hattie B's is a great spot to do that. Um, so you're a sports guy. Mm-hmm. What is your all-time favorite sports moment? All-time favorite sports moment, like personally or just watching? Watching or personally, if you want to take that. When I was a child, I was probably seven or eight years old. My dad took me down to Atlanta to a Braves game. And it turned out it was old timers day and I got to see, so I was born after Hank Aaron retired. Okay. Mm. But he played in this old timers game. He was probably 50 years old and he hit a home run in the old timers game. So I got to, even though I was born after Hank Aaron retired, I got to see him hit a home run personally. And then me and my brother and my dad's friend hung out by the elevators and tracked him down and oh. got him to autograph a baseball. So, no offense to Barry Bonds, but I consider Hank Aaron still the home run king. Um, and and seeing him at home run and meeting him is probably my greatest sports moment. That's awesome. Um, okay, cake or pie? Cake. Cake, okay. Um, do you like donuts? Yes. Okay, what is, okay, so first off, Dunkin' or Krispy Kreme? You spent time in New England, so I don't want you to get like pounded. I'm, yeah, I'm a D and D loyalist. So Dunkin' Donuts for the coffee, Krispy Kreme for the donut. Okay. Um, what is your favorite? Oh, have you had Shipley's? Shipley's donuts. Okay, so this was a big deal. So the guy at our church that handles the donuts, he unilaterally. That's an important position. It's a huge role, and he unilaterally decided to switch from Krispy Kreme to Shipley's. There was no church meeting. There was no church council. No vote was taken. He unilaterally made that decision. It made me nervous because I thought it was a big decision to make. People loved it. Oh, my god! People gosh, were man. so happy about it. So, yeah, we, we've become a Shipley's church. Well, not anymore because it's COVID, but before COVID. And, and I, I like Shipley's donuts a lot. Shipley's is amazing, man. <laughs> I was raised on Shipley's. Um so it's been a crazy year, um, but what has been the best thing in your life in 2020? Best moment or best you know theme or whatever? Well, obviously, it's always hard to talk about 
the good moments that have come out of quarantine because you never want to downplay the suffering and the loss of life. Right. But one one thing that happened out of the quarantine that was positive um, for our family is we started doing a lot of family walks and a lot of bike riding as a family. My youngest learned how to ride a bike. And so just walking through the neighborhood as a family, um, we've met more of our, our neighbors during this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And now all of my daughters feel, not the six-year-old, but the others, they go for runs on their own. They go for walks on their own. They ride bikes on their own. It's like growing up in the 80s again. Like everybody's out riding bikes, talking to each other. So that's been fun. Yeah. Sweet. All right, man. That is all the questions I have. Hey, nice. Dude, it's been awesome having you on today. I appreciate it, Clinger. All right. Take care.